You're on Isad Radio 89.7 FM. My name is Ira, and this is Arts Monday Sympoesis, where we talk about art and environmentalism. And this morning I'm joined here in the studio by poet Michael Eichen, who is just sitting across me. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. So you're here today, as I mentioned, to share some of your eco-poetry. But before we hear some of them, I wanted to ask you, how would you define eco-poetry? What would you see as fitting under this genre? Sure. Um, it's a, a very interesting concept, I think, because it's it's still emerging to a degree, although in practice it's something that's existed for, well, forever, really, as long as people have been writing. But particularly in the 20th century, it has gained conscious momentum. In terms of what the actual work is, I would define it as poetry that, in some way engages with or reflects on where we live. And I keep it that broad because I like to go back to, um, you know, the roots of words, like the the etymology. And so that root of eco in the Greek originally is home. So economics, for example, is, you know, the mm-hmm. knowledge of how to manage a household and things like that. And an ecology is a, is a place where things live. So at its broadest, that's what it is. It's about engaging with or reflecting on where either we live or other things live and particularly I think in contemporary writing it's about where humans cohabit with non-humans that's probably the best succinct definition and then I suppose extrapolating from that you you get a lot of convergences with environmentalism and I think a lot of the early eco-poets were people who were also passionate environmentalists so they other people I think who most consciously started talking about eco-poetic whereas for myself I was just interested in um, really just trying to find for want of a better word poetic moments in the real world like just seeing something um, and the best example that I really love is by the poet August Kleinzala he's got a poem called Dead Canary and it's just about him sitting at a bus stop and seeing a dead canary on the footpath and really just describing it those moments where you see some kind of beauty or mm-hmm. or not beauty but something profound and then try to capture it in verse from the world around you, um, that's how I came to it. And then met eco-poets who are much more environmentally active or politically conscious. And then the other thing that I think becomes very inescapable if you start thinking about where we live and notions of home and things like mm-hmm. that in Australia is the experience of Indigenous Australians and the lack of reconciliation um, between non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australia. You can't really talk about mm-hmm. the environment here and its profoundness and ignore Indigenous people who are you know, the owners of this land and the, the people who have such an enormous connection to it. Mm. And you mentioned just recently to me that couple of years ago you were a part of a panel as mm. part of a conference or yeah, gathering on eco-poetry. Writers Festival. Mm. What kind of ago. questions were raised during that panel? Um, I guess a lot of the things that I just touched on briefly and one of the questions that there's two major aspects I suppose that people debate around it. One is whether you need to be explicitly politically active or, or vocal in your work to refer to yourself as an eco-poet, which I don't particularly refer to myself as an eco-poet, but I can see that my work is eco-poetics, I suppose. And the other is, as I just mentioned, how naive it might be or even shallow at times for middle-class white Australians like myself to be talking about the environment and how it makes me feel or how I care about it 
if we're for a start if i don't have indigenous experience or also if we're Mm -hmm. excluding indigenous australia from the conversation so there's some of the things that really come out quite quickly Mm-hmm. Another thing I think that is really, really grips me a lot, and I think it's bound up in those two things I just mentioned, is the place of different species in our ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a really simplistic idea in strands of environmentalism and our culture generally that a native animal is good and a non-native animal is bad. Even the definition of what is native is quite skewed. There's a really interesting book that came out in 2000, I think, called The New Nature by the Australian scientist Tim Lowe. And he gives a lot of examples in there of how, yes, human impact and the introduction of non-native species has been devastating for a lot of animals, but also how some have benefited or thrived or even grown to sort of plague proportions as a result of human impact. So, you know, for example, noisy miners are a native bird, but they're a pest for Mm -hmm. a lot of people and also for other native species and then there's non-native plants that have been introduced that happen to create an ecology that has protected and severely threatened native plants gets more and more complex and what you see overall is that we keep applying these kind of superficial structures or definitions or understandings of the world that we've created but you can't then just shoehorn everything into that But I guess it depends on what people actually want to achieve with what they're doing as well. And that Mm -hmm. goes back to, is this about activism or is this about art or... What is it for you? Well, I guess, as I say, initially, I mean, I've always cared about the environment more so than, I guess, my average peer, even when I was a kid and things like that. And I've always been really interested in wildlife and things like that. So I do just notice things that um, some people would ignore around me and have written about them and incorporated into my writing. But I was never particularly trying to compel people to think something or anything like that. I prefer to write work that just kind of is what it is and then people can take what they want from it. listening to ESED Radio 89.7 FM. My name is Ira and this is Arts Monday Simpoesis where we talk about art and environmentalism. And I'm joined in the studio by poet Michael Eichen who is here to share some of his eco-poetry with us. And we will hear a poem called Makata Line and it is from a collection you published in 2014 called A Vicious Example. Is there anything you would like to tell us about this particular book before we hear it? Well, I guess I'm particularly fond of this book because it was my first book and yep. it took me a very long time to write it and then to get it published. It's also the vast majority of what I wrote in it. I wrote while I was working as a security guard all around the city, particularly doing like film production security and things like that. So I was often standing in the street for 16 to 20 hours straight doing nothing really, like just mm-hmm. making sure people didn't come and steal trucks and stuff. Um, and so that mindset of being a security guard, watching but not engaging, really made me feel like I was in a way both part of the city and not part of the community. And so a lot of these are written from that 
position of um, extreme observation of minute detail. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess people would find that when they read the book anyway, but I really love that. And I also really love the cover, I have to say. Chris Edwards designed the art for the cover, and it was shortlisted for an Australian Book Design Award, which I'm really proud of because I, I love the way he's merged a style of art that I suggested with his response to the work inside the book. It's a shame we can't see the mm. cover on radio, but let's hear the poem. Sure. So this is the MacArthur line. Um, and I'm also really pleased you suggested I do this poem because it, it's one of the few I have that does really engage with all the things we were just talking about, mm. um, happens to do. The MacArthur line. Great cranes extend their necks across the bog and swamp, land abandoned where airport and landfill edge up uncomfortable. Lass die Raten trinke Spaten. Shiny, bright, eco-efficient designs thrush from marsh mud and simmering drums, rusting against cars crushed amongst zelomite bedrooms, resting beneath tons of ochre, plaster of Paris, paper mache. Posts peg outlines of play equipment for the children of the well-meaning well-to-dos who'll buy all this. Skinks crash in plain tree leaves, stubbies disintegrate, debris free-flying but for a moment, then forever dormant melting softly into mulch, clay, shale and the silt of seasoned breath expelled on a milk crate inhaled for cigarettes, singing 40,000 years, 40,000 years. This city is like this country, broken bricks built over with steel, glass and nylon, the entire tumbling edifice propped precariously on a sandstone bed swarming with restless spirits. Tell me a bit about the moment when you were writing this poem. Where were you and what was maybe the first line that came to you? I was actually on the train, on the MacArthur train line. That's where the title comes from. Um, and staring out the window and commuting from Redfern down to Wollongong each morning for work. And that kind of situation I find really productive. You know, you've, you're locked in, there's not much you can do. You can either read a book or sleep or write, and they're the things I usually do. And so I think I built this poem over 
several train trips observing different things and a lot of it is really just saying you know like it starts off by talking about the cranes and everything over the swamp that are, were building um i guess what's now Wally creek and all that sort of area and i suppose i am an environmentalist at heart and that's always in the background for me so i can't help but talk about the fact that there is landfill there and there is the airport which fine airports are not uncommon but our airport to me is um quite symbolic of the haphazard construction of sydney the fact that the third runway was a temporary runway mm -hmm. to ease congestion and it's now you know it's been there for so long they never improved it or replaced it and the other thing that kind of sparked me once i started working on this poem was that name the macarthur line because macarthur was also a governor he was an early colonial leader. I actually can't remember now if he was ever governor, but I know that he and Bly and um, what's his name, Macquarie, all those sorts of people were cronies basically, you know, and they and they would do things like reward allies with land so that they could keep them on side against the others. Mm -hmm. But that rewarding of land was also effectively a permit to kill the Aboriginal people who owned that land. And the families who thereby took that land and occupied it immediately built enormous wealth in the colony and that has perpetuated. You know, there are families mm -hmm. now who are some of the wealthiest families in Sydney or the wealthiest families in Sydney who can trace their wealth back to being people who happen to be in a position to be given this land mm -hmm. out of cronyism and then enforce their ownership of it or the theft of it mm. through um, murder. So the notion of the MacArthur line really struck me as well. In one sense, it's just this train line cutting through this land that even now is still not that urbanised um, until more recently, but also all those other connotations of MacArthur and why we um, remember his name at all and what we might forget about what he did. Um, and then that just brings in all sorts of other things. I was really interested at the time in learning more about asbestos, for example, Mm -hmm. um, my father's a builder and I grew up playing with asbestos and things like that at times. I mean, he wouldn't have wanted me to, but I, I do remember doing it at times. And that's why I mentioned things like zelomite, which is a product that used asbestos a lot. And I guess classism is something that impacts me a lot as well. The fact that asbestos was really cheap to produce and so it was used to create homes for people like my father's family. Mm -hmm. Um because they could throw it together quickly. It didn't cost anything. And what do you know? It turns out that it's also lethal for the people mm -hmm. living in it mm -hmm. and very uncomfortable, you know, like terrible insulation. So really hot in the summer, really cold in the winter. And the other thing that really, I think, was playing on my mind as I put these things together, not as consciously as I'm now saying, is the risk of forgetting. Mm -hmm. And so things like asbestos, it's now seen as a very um, thing of the past, but there are actually still an enormous number of homes around Sydney that are full of asbestos, some of which we still don't know about. Obviously, there's still a legacy of people who worked with it who are dying and who, you know, were effectively cheated out of compensation mm -hmm. they were owed. There's also a lot of public buildings that are full of it. Like, I know some of the government buildings on Macquarie Street are internally coated in asbestos. Mm -hmm. Until recently, there was a building on the University of Sydney campus called the Transient Building, which again was meant to be temporary, but was there so long it had its own sign mm -hmm. saying the Transient Building, which was a huge asbestos shell. 
and they could keep those things because if it doesn't get damaged it's safe like as long as it is intact and i used to say to people when i'd see that building if anyone ever crashes their car into that building the entire campus is going to be covered in a cloud of asbestos mm. so it is still Present. around all the time yeah. i love this idea of poetry being a form of preservation mm. of a memory device and i love how you mentioned that you were writing this poem in transit while you were on train is movement lots of people talk about ideas coming when they walk is this something that resonates with you when do ideas come to you naturally i think often when i am forced to be still oh interesting i I recently found out that i have adhd which obviously i didn't know when i was a child but for example working as a security guard which i did for about 13 years um, as i say a lot of my job was just stay there and if somebody turns up tell them to go away basically and otherwise just stay here all night and Mm -hmm. do nothing and so I used to be much more productive when I had a job Um, even when I was at university I was studying full-time and working at night Um, but when I lost my job for a while my um, I fell behind at university because I used to go to work and then write my essays and read (laughs) read the readings I had to do and things like that Mm. because that time was allocated and I had to be there doing something. More efficient. And similarly um, with art, you know, I'd just be sitting there. It's kind of a very, I suppose, meditative state to be in where you're not required to do anything except be and observe Mm. for all that time. Yeah. But it's also um, in those moments, I imagine, would be an escapism from boredom of just waiting. Yeah, and I think, and probably it does connect to my ADHD, it's also before the boredom even arrives, it's an opportunity to just run with your mind wherever it might want to go and not just imagination, but sorry to chop and change, but it's, it's really interesting to me that the more I learn about ADHD, the more I connect it to positive things because people think of it as being people who can't sit still and can't focus but I've had it explained to me that it's much better to understand it as um, people with ADD have trouble applying the appropriate amount of or the expected amount of attention at the appropriate time so yes you might not sit still and listen when you're supposed to or you might focus extremely deeply for a long time on something that no one else would spend Mm -hmm. that time on and that's how I ended up with a you know, hundred-page poetry book all about you know, like cats walking through the street and things like that. And would you, as a security guard, have a little notepad in your mm. pocket to mark those things down Absolutely. straight away? Yeah, and and you know, as part of my job, I needed to note down anything that might happen that was relevant to the client, yeah. which virtually never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are put in that mentality as a security guard, and it's one of the only things you're allowed to do is to note mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. what you say. And so the the um, the big poem in this book, which goes for about forty pages, and it's just these vignettes of the city, um, they're exploded on the page. You know, like a lot of the words have extra spacing between individual letters and things, and that structure is actually trying to preserve the way they looked on the page in my notebooks, because often you know it was a tiny notebook and they wouldn't fit um, mm. in a normal way, and I just. I felt like they were so perfect the way they were that that's how I put them onto the page in the book mm. as well. And how do you these days find moment of sti- moments of stillness? It's been quite hard, actually. I mean, I I um, used to go for walks at work and things like that. So the last book I had out, um, 
which came out in 2019, was right around when I left my job of 10 years that I'd had with the university. Um, and I wrote a lot of that book while commuting to work. Again, I was getting the train out to the western suburbs most days. Um, um, when I was at work, I'd go for a walk in the park and often observe things. Um, but really, it was that train ride even then. And in fact, both the book I just mentioned and the one before it, I wrote largely on the train on the way to work. So you would be finding stillness in movement, yeah, in transition. And, and I would be particularly consciously saying to myself, if you want to keep writing, this is your only opportunity. Because I also have young children and um, was working very long hours. So I, you've got 20 minutes now before you have to go off the train again. Write or don't. But if you don't, you can't say you didn't have time. You know, like, mm. um, Whereas now I work for myself and I run my own business. And I find it much harder to make that time because there's always things that could be done and I'm not on somebody else's clock. Mm. Um, I keep thinking to myself, if the business has been going for almost two years now and when I look back at my writing, it's probably been the least productive time of my life for a very mm. long time. But, but you're catering for the others and we'll come to that because yeah. Michael is currently running a beautiful cafe, community cafe and a venue in St. Peter's called Garden Lounge and we'll come back to that because the place is actually open for poets to come and read their poetry. And other artists as well. But let's stick with your work before we move to others Uh, and hear from this. So this is the book you have just mentioned, The The Little Book of Sunlight and Maggots. Yes. And uh, we have selected together a few poems from there but let's hear Bridge first. Maybe just briefly, how did that one come to life? This one was more, and I think quite a bit of the early part of this book in general is more about reflecting on memories from my childhood especially and things like that. And again, trying to bring back things that I loved or that felt special that had gone. I grew up in quite a remote town on the central coast and there were almost no houses there and most of them were holiday homes. We were one of, you know, only... maybe two dozen families that actually lived in the town all year round. And um, there was, for example, there's another poem in this book somewhere about me and my brother playing in a forest of bamboo. And that forest is gone now. There's houses built over the top of it. And, I mean, that's an invasive weed. Mm -hmm. But a bamboo forest is quite an amazing place. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of this book was writing about those sort of memories. This one is a kind of amalgam of travelling in... um, sort of central New South Wales, I suppose, or just over the Blue Mountains, which we did a bit as a family. We'd go camping out there and things like that. And it's also a bit fictional, I suppose. Like there's a little bit of a story in it, but not not much. Mm. Um, it's interesting, actually, just looking at it, I noticed that I used the phrase 40,000 years in this poem, which I also did in... I marked that as my line. question. Yeah, that was very interesting because I, as I say, I think that Indigenous experience is very deeply bound in country obviously mm-hmm. and to an extent that's beyond the capacity of English to engage with you know I think that unless you actually are part of an indigenous culture or have indigenous language you can't even contemplate the concepts because without the terminology you can't conceive of some things mm-hmm. um, and 40,000 years I suppose for me is that that kind of arbitrary flag because obviously we know that indigenous people have been here a lot longer than 40,000 years but I can remember when I was in early primary school we were taught they'd been here for 5,000 years or Mm -hmm. 4,000 years and then it went up to 20 and then when I did the Aboriginal studies at high school we were told actually it's at least 40 
um, and that's all the archaeological evidence they had at the time. But a point that was made to be by my teacher, who is not Indigenous, but that always stuck with me, is he said, if you look at other fields of scholarship and other aspects of anthropology, he said there is evidence in the oral traditions that Indigenous people have always been here. And and that's different to places like New Zealand, for example, where the Indigenous people there will say, no, we know we came from somewhere else and these are our stories about doing that. And, of course, now the archaeology has caught up and there's now um, archaeological evidence to support the notion that Indigenous people have been in Australia for as long as there's been human civilization anywhere on the planet. Mm-hmm. So they effectively have always been here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that 40,000 years, I mentioned it in the MacArthur line because it was literally that I was walking through the block in Redfern to get the train and there was an Indigenous guy sitting there singing 40,000 years over and over in front of the mural that says, you know, 40,000 years is a long time, long time in my mind. Mm-hmm. And in the bridge, when you mention, and we are about to hear mm. that poem, when you mention 40,000 years and then you finish with the line, the distance we were never meant to see, mm. is that referring to the distance going into the past or in the future? Or um, It's it's not that concrete. Mm. I, with this poem, I, I reworked this one quite a lot, whereas some I don't really redraft. And I even had a fair bit of feedback from some poets I really respect and admire about this one but I guess what I was trying to tease out was the intimacy and the privacy of getting to see these two turtles um, doing basically a mating dance like swimming around each other on a river and the only reason that we could observe it was because we were on a bridge so high above that they weren't aware of us and weren't um, put off you know they didn't go away because of us Um, and so I guess to me that that final bit about the distance we were never meant to see really evokes a lot of different things. One, that there is a non-human world that is not ours and will never be ours. And despite what I just said about getting to observe those turtles, I do strongly believe in the uncertainty principle from physics um, and particularly quantum physics, which is that you can't observe something without altering it that by being present and observing, whether you know what the impact is or not, there is always an impact that changes the thing you're observing. So that's one thing. We can never know the things that we Mm. don't observe or that we don't see without observing. Mm. Um, And the other is, yeah, going back to that Indigenous experience and more the notion that 40,000 years is actually not that long for how long Indigenous civilization in Australia has existed continuously. Um, whereas for my, someone like myself, my family basically from the British Isles and Western Europe, um, somewhere like England, for example, what is it, maybe 12,000 years ago, it was uninhabited. Mm. Um, so the fact that there are things like the fish traps out at Brewarrina that are thirty or 40,000 years old and the people who built them still know how they work and how to build them and they still speak the languages of the seven nations that built them together and that that's almost four times as long ago as something like Stonehenge or the Mm. pyramids Mm. or whatever. So there's that concept as well of just, I suppose, we as, for myself, I feel like quite a rudderless person culturally, and I think a lot of, for want of a better word, mainstream Australians don't think back before 200 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that seems like a long time to them. And then when you look at cultures that have got 70,000 years or, you know, all of human time, that 40,000 
is a very different concept. So I guess it's also about there are other human experiences that are beyond the comprehension of a culture like my own that is so fragmented and disrupted and forgotten. You know, we've, we've actually forgotten our own history from much mm. more recently. Let's hear the poem Bridge from Michael Eichen. You're on ESA Radio 89.7 FM and this is a poem called Bridge, Michael Eichen. Bridge. Green wet hills, sponge grey sky, heaving themselves like leviathans in the mist. A thin bridge, iron and timber, and this one small car which refuses to start. Poised at the rail, never anything if not composed, you smoke in the cold and gaze along the river. Below our feet, a deep pool looks still. Weather-worn, smooth surface, abraded, 40,000 years. The great snake of a river leaving us alone in its wake. Two turtles splay, a private dance, more intimate for the distance, the distance we were never meant to see. So you mentioned you grew up in a remote town, Mm -hmm. Central Coast. So I'm imagining you were growing up in nature. Yeah, so it was a seaside town or is a seaside town, Copacabana on the southern Central Coast. And it's still pretty remote. Like It's never really been that built up, but the houses there are now sort of huge mansions rather than the little shacks that were there when I was growing up. Um, And so all we had was the bush around us and the beach which was great as a little kid, as a teenager. It's very boring unless you're part of the surfing crowd or you want to sit around and smoke pot all day. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking this question because uh, we are going to hear a third poem of yours called I Exited Bamboo, and in it there's a line that says, I was born with small birds in my eyes. Mm. And then another one that says, I emerged from bamboo. So I'm, I was thinking about your potential childhood in that. Is, is, am I correct? Am I yeah, right absolutely. Track? And it's also, this poem was actually pretty directly um, inspired by, um, I, what's it called? I Rose from Marsh Mud by Lorraine Niedeker, who's a poet from the US from the mid-20th century. She's an objectivist who is sadly not very well recognised yet. Um, and I think the objectivists are a strong influence on eco-poetry because they are very much about observation and reality and um, they call themselves the objectivists because they didn't believe in objectivity and so it was kind of an ironic name for the Mm -hmm. group. Mm -hmm. So is that in opposition to romanticism? Um, I always thought so, but I actually increasingly um, can see that 
no, they're, they're quite similar, partly because my understanding of romanticism was that it was all about subjectivity. But um, I was only talking to a, an academic and poet recently, Luke Fisher, actually, who elucidated a bit better for me that that's one strand of romanticism and that's very much English romanticism as well. And not having any other language, I haven't really read the German romantics and things like that. Um, but no, I think that the romantics, even the English ones, were actually um, aware that you can't have pure objectivity, but that didn't mean they wanted to surrender to subjectivity. And the objectivists are similar. What The objectivists were really trying to say there is no objectivity by, by pursuing objectivity as, as fiercely as they possibly could and removing all um, personal input into their poems. Um, but by doing that, they just expose the fact that it's still always subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lorraine Niedeker in particular, she lived in a rural area and lived surrounded by swamp and everything, and her poem, I Rose from Marsh Mud. Um, I just always loved that line, apart from anything else. But, um, yeah, that's what inspired me to sort of say I exited bamboo. And obviously part of what's significant for me with that is that bamboo is an invasive species as well. It's no more native than I am, um, though I was born here. Um, should I read let's it? Let's hear it, yes. I exited bamboo. I exited bamboo. Lantana, eucalypts, stepped from a shell on the shore of the sea, pacific and awake to nothing. I was born with small birds in my eyes, hair of sticks, leaves of sand, paper coarse and wild on the edge of a single lawn, a grove in the mountains. Sacred place, elided and eroded, erased. I emerged from bamboo. I enter bamboo groves, a forest copse, semi-seen. I am the silver eyes and quarkle pheasants, never remembered. A fox on the beach, carefully eating eggs. While you grew up in the country, in the nature, you're currently living in the city, in St. Peter's, and you're raising your kids there. So mm. I was wondering, how are you bringing your kids in touch with nature these days? That's a really interesting question. And, it, you know, I have often said that if I'd thought about it more and tried to plan it more, I would have preferred to bring the children up in Copacabana, where I grew up, or somewhere else like that, for their primary schooling and then moved to the city for high school because I do think that for teenagers remote and um, regional areas can be really challenging for very different reasons mm-hmm. um, but we're really lucky I mean as I say we're down sort of the St Peter's end of Newtown and um, there's things like Sydney Park where you can see turtles and mm-hmm. eels and flying foxes um, and I guess I've always looked for whatever is around me to explore so I, I've always really loved even just the the greenery you see growing wild on the side of buildings where fig trees are slowly destroying buildings and things like that. 
and I, I probably talk about wildlife far too much to the children. I think they get a bit sick of it, though they, they are interested in their own ways. I took a couple of them down to Tarawa Reserve recently, for example, to visit the flying fox colony there and walk through and actually see the bats in the daylight, which they loved. Um, and we have a small pond in our backyard. We don't have any grass, but we've got a pond with some mosquito fish in it. Um, so, you know, it's really partly just looking for any opportunities yeah. like that. And in your front yard, mm. you have a cafe, a yeah. community cafe and a venue called Garden Lunch. Yeah, so I actually usually refer to it as a bookshop, mm -hmm. um, specialising in, in poetry because there's no other shop in Sydney specialising in poetry. But yeah, a bookshop and licensed cafe. And then having those two entities in that one space gives us the opportunity to, as you say, um, create a space for people to come together and experience art. And so we have live music, we have live poetry every week. Um, we have lots of books that you can't find anywhere else unless you know those books exist already and look for them online or something. And some of them even then you wouldn't find them because mm -hmm. I get some directly from authors and get some from overseas as well. Um, yeah. And the Garden Lounge is a place of gathering and community. Mm. And I feel personally that there is some interrelation between environmental care what writer Vera John Steiner calls as constructing winness. She speaks about the importance of constructing communal we in a world where the separateness of individuals is still highly prized. Mm. Do you see any connection between collectivity and environmentalism? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for a start, protecting the environment is the best way to ensure the best possible future for everyone. So if, if we're not actively mindful of our impact on the environment then by default we're kind of not caring about others either mm. um, and vice versa yeah yep. and and because the two do coexist there's not really I and mean, I think it was Edmund Wilson who said that um, nature has never existed as a natural thing there, there is no wild separate from human contact and the notion that there is is actually false and that a lot of the environments that we think of as being the last wilderness have actually been impacted by humans and we may just not have seen it. And some of them have even been cultivated by humans to look the way they do, but we don't necessarily see that or remember that. Mm. Um, and also being a part of community is about the sense of belonging mm. and it is almost um, going against the, the current of individualism yeah. and individual ownership into something that's you know we are part of we are together in in this world in this yeah, nature absolutely. we are part of it and i think um you know that's something we try very much to do at garden lounge is like i said we have a lot of events and i do seek out performers but i also constantly am encouraging anyone who's interested to come and read or sing or whatever and i've been asked a bit about how i feel about being a gatekeeper in that sense um and I try very much not to be a gatekeeper. Like, I'll take any book that someone... I've got a lot of self-published books, um, and I'll take anyone who says I want to get up and read. Um, my only hesitation is ever that I don't want to put someone in a situation where they feel overwhelmed or um, embarrassed. But there's different ways we can do it. You know, I'll put somebody on with other people if that's going to make them feel better, or we'll get somebody else to read the work of a person who doesn't want to read but wants mm -hmm. to share their work and things like that. Um, it's also really important to me that I mentioned that we're licensed, like we do sell beer and things, but it's a cafe license, which means that children are always allowed to be there. Mm -hmm. And one, because I want 
under 18s to be able to access the art, but also their parents. As a parent myself, I know how easy it is to get locked out of entire aspects of the community because children are not welcome and things like that. Wonderful. Yeah. So if you want to find out more about Garden Lounge, there is Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram account. So search yeah, for that. Garden Lounge Newtown. People will find it pretty easily if they search yeah, for that. So it's south end of Newtown, yeah. St. Peter's. Is it it's technically Newtown, Newtown still? still. Mm-hmm. It's near sort of the Union Hotel and Parliament um, on King, sort of in between those two, but on the other side of the road. Mm-hmm. You're on ESED Radio 89.7 FM. My name is Ira, and you're listening to Arts Monday Sympoesis. And I was just in conversation to poet Michael Eichen, who was here to share some of his eco-poetry with us. We'll have a short break, and then I will be on call to Aris Penelope Kane, and she will talk to us about the Environmental Project Superorganism, which is currently in collective development as part of the Inner West Art Camp on the Greenway. Mm-hmm. 